everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not with me. Instead, I'm going to be having a long, long, long conversation with Mr. Joe Lowry of The Athletic, as well as many other publications and sites. Uh, I talked about this a little bit earlier in the week. We've had Paul uh, Tenorio on. We had Felipe Cardenas on to help me kind of make sense of the U.S. from a more general perspective and the results against Uruguay and Mexico. Uh, with Joe, we talk a little bit about that up front, about like kind of the state of the team, the styles we've seen, the patterns we've seen so far. But then we get uh, pretty in-depth on the, uh, some of the players that we've enjoyed, some of the players we didn't enjoy, what we saw, what these players need to work on. Uh, that was the thing I enjoyed uh, immensely, was kind of trying to find things that we want to be able to track and see how players improve in terms of like individual abilities. Could be passing, could be on-the-ball decision-making, could be defensive positioning, lots of different stuff in there. Uh, we get to sort of what our ideal U.S. squad looks like right now, combining what Berhalter does with what we want to see done. And we close it out with uh, some long-awaited, if you are in the kind of American Southwest uh, discussion, of Phoenix Rising, the USL Championship side, who are uh, far and away the best team in USL Championship, uh, an 18-point lead at the top of the Western Conference. Uh, they have broken the uh, record for, I think, longest winning streak in any U.S. Uh, soccer system uh, that at least has been tracked. Uh, I'm sure somebody will email in to say that this team in 1904 did it better, but uh, I'm sticking with Phoenix Rising for now. Uh, so we talk about that. We talk about individual players. We talk about the national team as a whole. We talk about Berhalter's style and tactics. Lots of great USMNT chat in there. So I will stop talking and instead say, Joe, thank you very much for taking the time to come back on the show for the second time in fewer than two weeks. Not bad. Of course. Thanks for having me back on, Taylor. I, I like coming on and doing it a couple times in a couple weeks is great with me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a new one. Uh, so we did a sort of preview of the Mexico game and it's sort of a general look at the camp. Uh, now that that camp is done, the international break is over, we can sort of look back on it. And I think a good way to start uh, would be with a tweet that you sent me, I think, halfway through the Mexico game, which was, <laughs> we were way too chipper, weren't we? And I think that's probably true. Uh, so I wanted to start off with a bit of a cliche and essentially just ask you, if you're assigning the the USMNT, a letter grade for this camp or for these friendlies, what would you go for overall? You can split it into the friendlies, uh, individual results if you want, but I want your overall grade if possible. Yes, the overall grade has got to be a D, right? I don't don't know that I'd say an F because that would probably mean that, you know, Berhalter gets fired and Mm -hmm. and all this stuff that the team really did fail and and you're starting over again, you're retaking the class. But um, it seems to me that they are not too far above that. But at the same time, I'm caught of two minds here because I really do think that it is worth building on on what Berhalter has sort of set out to do. It's it's worth not throwing that all away. So, unfortunately, that that means at least the way Berhalter has has taken it and interpreted his own ideas. That means that we have to watch the team consistently, you know, turn the ball over and build up against Mexico and. And that's not something that anyone wants to watch as fans. It's not something that you know individuals want to see. They don't want to see their team get pummeled repeatedly and do the same things over and over again with, with little adjustments or at least little visible adjustments. So it's frustrating in that respect. Uh, the Uruguay game, I, I do think, was a little bit better, but it, it's hard to compare. They're not identical. Like the two friendlies weren't identical because the Uruguay and Mexico played vastly mm-hmm. different defensive styles. So it's you know you don't necessarily want to compare them again because the US's lineup was different as well but i think there were some things that i would say we learned and and that brought value but on the whole you know it was not it was not a great window taylor 
uh, I would agree with that. Uh, I think I agree with your grade. We'll see how that like if that changes for me over the course of this conversation. I tend to be more positive the longer we talk, so we'll see if we end up. No, yes, me. me too. So we could okay. be at a, a solid B minus by the time we finish here. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, then I, let me ask you this: like, if not an elevator pitch, say you're explaining the current U.S. team to like a casual soccer fan, how do you do it? Like, what are you telling that person about? Like, here's their current status. Here's their style of play. Here's the state of the team. Here's what they're trying to do. Like, how do you give a succinct explanation of the U.S. national team as it currently exists? I think a good place to start is with the players. So there's just, I mean, the, the talent deficit between Mexico and the U.S. was was pretty clear to see. So mm-hmm. if I'm explaining the current state of the national team to someone who is not particularly informed about it, I'd start there. So a limited player pool right now, it's it's pretty shallow. Um, but the goals that Berhalter and the coaching staff are setting for the team is he has lofty expectations. So he wants to see the coaching staff wants to see the team, you know, take risks in possession, move the ball quickly and play into space. They have the ideal picture of what they want in their heads. They have the ideas behind kind of what they're trying to do. Just I think the gap is between you know the communication of those ideas from coaches to players and the execution as well. So struggling talent pool with uh, a very ideal you know, idealized idea of what they want to do, but maybe not quite there yet. Well, clearly not quite there yet in execution or, you know, maybe in communication as well. I thought Will Parchman had a great tweet. I think I saw this from you <laughs> retweeting it, but it was essentially uh, the idea being the gist of it was like uh, Greg Berhalter is William Faulkner trying to write uh, like ad copy for Popeyes that it can be all verbose and beautiful, but this is Popeyes. Like, you know what you're doing here. Come on. And, and I guess I feel like they're, must have been that temptation for Burhalter. I think a lot of other coaches would have just gone, okay, we're going to sit and we're going to be direct. We're going to kind of abandon this approach. He seems very proud of his players and himself to some extent. Not saying he's arrogant, but I think he was happy that they stuck with this style. Like, but is that in your mind a good thing that they kind of stuck with it? Like maybe it lays the foundational building blocks for what they're going to do, do down the road. But to me, it also speaks to a lack of improvisation, a lack of adaptability when what you're doing clearly isn't working. I agree. And and that's why I'm sort of stuck in in two places mentally about how I think about this, because I do think there is real value in kind of using these friendlies as a training session. Like, I mean, from a fan's perspective, you don't want to see that, but there is value in going out there and getting reps against a high press that you can't really replicate in any other situation. So I see value in building for the future that way. But, you know, from a tactical perspective, I also see the limitations that just kind of going out there and, and trying to bang your head through the wall over and over again. It's it's maybe not how I would think to approach if I were in Berhalter's situation, how I would think to, to drop a game plan. You want to see your players adopt the style and the principles that you, you're teaching them and that you're teaching and training and running through. But at a certain point, you also have to you have to play to, to win as well. And I don't know that we're seeing that from the U.S., but then again, I'm not really sure that that matters right now. I think, you know, what's what Berhalter said, and Paul Tenorio talked about this uh, on your show earlier this week, you know, after that Jamaica friendly before the Gold Cup, you know, it, it doesn't matter. The result doesn't matter. And no one's going to remember the result. So we're realistically, we're probably going to remember this Mexico game. But if I'm Berhalter's shoes, I can't understand where he's coming from. I absolutely do get the idea that he wants to see his team adopt these principles. And maybe in a meaningful competition, he would adjust a little bit. Even if it's a World Cup mm-hmm. final, the U.S. isn't going to just, you know, play into Mexico's press over and over again. They're, they're going to go long. You know, that's just the, the nuts and bolts of it. So... I see both sides of it, and it is slightly frustrating as you know an observer to see the team kind of go through the motions a little bit, but it, it might just be necessary for the long term. But here's where I get confused, though, is like 
I know, like, the results don't matter, it's friendlies, whatever, but, like, at some point, it does have to matter. And I don't mean that in the sense of, like, we don't want to fail to qualify or we want to do well in an official competition, but, like, there has to be, like, you can't go straight from, like, oh, yeah, this totally works in practice, and then you try it in a game and it doesn't. Like, there has to be that intermediary step where, like, oh, no, we see them in a friendly, look totally dominant, and they all seem capable of this. And I guess my fear is, like, if you're always waiting for it to be, like, an official competition that matters, and you're never sort of looking at friendlies, I'm not saying this is you joe i'm just saying like this is where my my mind is is like i get confused about like but at a certain point we have to see it sort of working successfully otherwise why would we have faith that it's then going to work when the time comes that it matters right no and i I totally agree with that and i just end up circling all around these arguments over and over in my head because it where you're coming from is exactly right if we're just kind of waiting for the games that matter to run the system and expecting it's going to work just because we've had all these friendlies that we really tried and we really practiced it even if it didn't work so well, like, oh, it'll, it'll work when the time comes and we need it to work. That's not logical. That doesn't make sense. So just expecting that it's going to just all come together when it has to isn't fair. So we do need to start to see the pieces come together. And I, I think you know, in the Uruguay game, things were better different. Uruguay tested a different part of the United States offensive game plan than Mexico did. Um, but, you know, there was some some positives to take away from that game. But as we come into CONCACAF Nations League, we have to see these ideas start, you know, start being adopted better by the players. And we have to see Berhalter's vision sort of come into focus. Otherwise, you know, the team's going to be in trouble when the games come that matter, like you're saying. So uh, Sam Stasekul was on the show uh, this week. Uh, he he was arguing that we don't need to look for silver linings against Mexico. So I won't ask you to necessarily look for a silver lining, but I, I did, like, uh, stalking your timeline on Twitter, I did note that you went back and watched those first 20 minutes against Mexico. You seemed slightly more okay with it than I think Daryl or, or I were. So I wanted to ask about that, uh, like, early on here. Like, did you see things against Mexico that you felt like could be foundational building blocks? Were there patterns of play or approaches to the game that you thought were sort of interesting uh, adjustments or sort of things we haven't seen before that are maybe signs that we're moving in the right direction? If not the right direction, then at least like you did see sort of evolution in the tactics is probably the succinct way to put it. I did. I did. I actually, I only tweeted about the first 20 minutes because uh, I, I didn't want to stir the pot any more than I had to. But I went back and watched <laughs> the whole game uh, this week for a piece that will hopefully be coming out on The Athletic uh, at some point over the next couple of days. I don't know exactly when. But um, I went back and watched the whole thing. And I, my takeaway sort of was exactly what Henry Bushnell wrote his article for Yahoo Sports about. Uh, he was talking about how the U.S. struggled to, to manipulate, no, not to manipulate space, but to recognize and take advantage of that space. I think in build-up, the U.S. did a good job of creating opportunities to, to break through Mexico's press. They just didn't do a good job of taking advantage. So there were a couple of clips that stand out in my mind where Alfredo Morales had a chance to just you know slide a few yards over, five yards over maybe, to be an option to, to really completely break the press and, and get the ball in the middle of the field and just be able to run and transition and, and he didn't see it. And he wasn't the only one. I think a lot of the different players in that lineup had maybe a, a lack of understanding of how to move into those pockets of space. But a, a positive, a genuine positive that I, I do take away from that game is that the, the system that Berhalter's, you know, implementing is creating those opportunities. So maybe maybe they're not quite ready to take advantage of them. And I don't understand why they're not able to do that at this point, but they're there. So that's maybe the biggest positive. It's also a negative. It's a negative that they didn't take advantage of them from a result standpoint. But 
the fact that the system is creating those pockets of space to play through pressure is is a positive thing in my mind. All right, that, that makes sense to me, and I can I can take that. I think uh, I saw Matt Tomashevitz, uh He tweeted out, I think it was him. I could be wrong. Something along the lines of like he could tell with a few players that like the idea was there and the sort of understanding of what was being asked of them was there, but it was so deliberate, uh, which I think is the nice way of saying slow. That like <laughs> maybe what it indicated was that it was still players not being quite familiar with what was being asked of them, and it's still not sort of second nature. And maybe that's the part Partial explanation for why the U.S. struggled to take advantage of that space or uh, manipulate it, I think is a great word, um, because maybe those players just are still like, okay, I know I'm supposed to be in this area, but then like they're trying to solve like the rest of the flashcard. They're trying to memorize the rest of the flashcard, and they like remember the gist of it, but not quite enough of the specifics to actually pull it off. So I guess that would be then foundational building blocks if you know the first half of the flashcard, but not the second. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the basics are there. Maybe just the players aren't quite in the system yet. I mean, just using Morales as an example, he hasn't been in with Berhalter yet. And it seems to me that the coaching staff is reaching out to these players and watching film and and trying to communicate what they want to see before they actually get the players in camp. But, you know, there is a difference between seeing it and doing it, right? So I I think there is reason to be slightly patient in in understanding of these players working through the mental process in their head. Um, But, you know, you you do want to see the results happen. And I don't think it quite came together in the Mexico game. Uh, what else did you see in your rewatches? Like, uh, can be positive, can be negative, but were there any other things that you kind of consistently spotted? It could be in, like an individual player doing something or overall trends. In, from that Mexico game or from yeah. uh, both games? I mean, e- either game, whichever one you want to go with. We can open it up here a little bit since Daryl and I have talked a lot about Mexico. You and I have already talked about it a little bit. Could be Mexico, could be Uruguay, whichever you prefer. Well, one more thing from the Mexico game that stands out in my mind is Zach Steffen's distribution. I mean, he's he's playing because he's supposed to be the guy who can who can get the ball to his outfield players the most consistently and he really struggled in that game to to play those outlet passes out wide to, to the fullbacks or or to settle the ball he did some he had some positive moments but on the whole i don't think it was a very good performance from him and so that's that's something to keep an eye on for the future uh that that was my other big takeaway from the mexico game in the uruguay game i think there were some real positives in how the team moved the ball it was a little slow on the whole, just the entire game was slow. The atmosphere mm-hmm. was was odd. It's been talked about, you know, I think enough already at this point. But there were some some nice attacking combinations that led to a couple decent goal scoring chances. And, and it's a pretty low bar when the word decent is being used in a, in a positive spin. But it's true. I think the U.S. had some good attacking combinations out wide, maybe lacking a little bit centrally in terms of their ability to get the ball and, and draw out players in the middle of the field. But Berhalter always talks about hitting those balls from his central midfielder, Jackson Ewell, played those long diagonals out wide. He talks about that all the time. If you give him a chance to talk, Berhalter's likely going to talk about that. So when you know you see Jackson Ewell spray the ball wide to Jordan Morris and, and Sebastian, Legette as that central midfielder making a run to the edge of the box and attacking that area that Manchester City is famous for. I think that's great. That's great to see. And it's not the complete picture yet. And I, I don't think that Berhalter would be satisfied with the attacking performance in possession in that game. But I think there were some genuine positives to take away. And hopefully when you start to get some of the more first choice players into that lineup, you know, if it's Pulisic receiving the ball out wide instead of Morris and and I don't know if it's Weston McKinney or charging into the box, you know, things like that. If you start to upgrade the players as well, the ideas and the execution on those ideas is going to improve. 
Hey, everybody. Wanted to take a quick break to let you know that today's show is sponsored in part by Manscaped, who is the number one in men's below-the-belt grooming. Uh, Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. If you head over to Manscaped.com, you can check out all of the different products they have. Uh, they have them in a variety of like sets and then the individual tools and then the individual products themselves if you just want like one specific thing. It's hot. It's still pretty sweaty. It's like 100 degrees outside, so maybe you want like uh, a specialized deodorant for uh, for downstairs. You can get that from the Crop Preserver. They also have the Foot Duster, which is a cooling 24-hour foot deodorant. So if you're wearing sandals or maybe you've worn the shoes without socks a few too many times and now things aren't great down there, you uh, you can get the, the foot deodorant to cover that one right up and you're good to go. Then obviously they've got the kind of more noteworthy, more known products like the Plow, which is a safety razor. If you want to get that close of a shave or the Lawnmower 2.0, which is their waterproof electric trimmer that uh, uses proprietary skin-safe technology so you won't have uh, cuts or snags or anything like that, which you absolutely do not want when uh, trimming and keeping things nice and orderly down there. Um, Best of all, our listeners can get 20% off plus free shipping with the code TSS at manscaped.com. One more time, that's uh, promo code TSS to get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. A link to Manscaped will obviously be in the show notes, and we thank them very much for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, with all that said, back to my USMNT chat with Mr. Joe Lowry. So I want to ask you a little bit more about your like ideal 11, maybe 23, but probably 11 uh, later on. One more kind of general question I had from these two games. Uh, it feels like a lot of times when we see Berhalter making substitutions, which does seem to be the way he adjusts. Like I don't see him doing a lot of in-game adjustments, whereas we saw Tata Martino and Oscar Tabarez making a lot of like, okay, now you like after 20 minutes, somebody needs to sit on Jackson Ewell. And a few of the adjustments we saw from Tata, I felt like really caused the United States problems. Berhalter, it seems to me, uses his substitutions sort of as, as that except that those substitutions tend to be really like for like. And I'm wondering if you have an idea as to why, or if you agree, and if so, why that might be the case. Because it feels like if we see a left back coming out, it's a left back coming in. If we see a left midfielder coming out, it's a left midfielder coming in. We don't see a lot of like a forward coming out and a central midfielder coming on or a center back coming out and a center forward coming on. It feels like it's very similar. And the only reason I can see for that is because he just wants everyone to be buying into the system and sort of learning how to play a similar way. And then they can sort of adapt after that. I think I had the same perspective, exactly what you just outlined. I think he wants to get players in the position that he believes that they'll play in. Uh, so, you know, when we see Daniel Lovitz come on in, around the 70th minute in both of these friendlies, he's playing left back. And, right. you know, so they're rotating in almost like a platoon system. So maybe in in future competitive games, we see that shift a little bit. But I'm trying to even think back to the Gold Cup, and I don't remember too many substitutions that completely changed or, or, or put more emphasis in one phase of the game mm-hmm. over others. So I don't know exactly why that could be i think there's value in adjusting the system and like replicating real game situations you know when you're trailing or when you're leading adjusting the system a little bit to to kind of put a stronghold or to to try to catapult yourself back in into the game i think there's value to that and value to practicing those situations but i think for now in burhalter's mind at least it's likely to get as many guys as he can in the spots that he he likes them best in 
So then, it, like moving forward, is it safe to say that like some of the things that we think will be stressed by Burhalter or we want to see stressed in terms of this team continuing to develop would be uh, taking advantage of the space once it's created, as you said, maybe improving distribution, especially out of the back, especially out of Zach Steffen, and then working on a few more of like the combinations that we think will become sort of key patterns of play for the U.S. Would that be three? Are there any other things that you want to like see the United States continue to develop specifically? I think though I definitely agree with those three items. It's easy for me to focus on the offensive side of the game of what the U.S. is doing, but there also is the defensive aspect as well because the Burhalter wants to create this free-flowing possession team that that you know goes quickly in the attack when the opportunity arises. But then when they lose the ball, I think we can see an improvement, or, or hopefully we will continue to see an improvement of the team's defensive mm-hmm. structure and their pressing ability. I think it was it was decent, especially in the early going against Mexico. Their their block was pretty effective. Weston McKinney and uh, Zardes moved pretty well as that front two, denying angles in the midfield and things like that. But as as the team continues to grow and get more comfortable, hopefully get more comfortable in Peralta's style, I think we're going to need to see an increase in their ability to counterpress and to win the ball after they lose it in the final third. You know, Uruguay's goal came because. Christian Roldan wouldn't foul right at the edge of the box to stop the counterattack. And I think Berhalter, I think I read that Berhalter talked about that moment specifically after the game. He wants to see his team be ruthless in defensive transition to win the ball back, to to make defending an offensive thing. It's not, it shouldn't be passive. So I think that's another thing that I'm really, you know, eager to see develop, to see the defensive side of the game develop and, and press and have them be just ruthless in how they win the ball back after they lose it. All right, that, that's all very good information, and I ask it because, like, I do want to talk about individual performances and some things we saw there. But I, I'm with you that I don't think this is a good camp. I'm with you on that letter grade, and I'm with you on some ways I want to see the team improve. But if we take Greg Berhalter, Berhalter at face value, who says, like, no, I was, I was happier with that game against Mexico Friday night, happier with that game than I was uh, the Gold Cup final against Mexico. If you're taking him at his word, then that means like no one really played themselves out of form. If if everybody did what was asked of them and the growing pains were there, then it stands to reason that like a lot of these players are still up for consideration in the future. And But then at the same time, with things looking so bleak, it's hard for me to accept that. And so I guess I wanted to get an idea of what we, you and I, think the United States needs to improve on moving forward so that we can then talk about some of these performers as to whether or not they did improve in this camp or we saw some positive things from them or if we feel like maybe going forward we're going to see less of them because they can't adapt. Does that work for you? No, that's great. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Then I guess uh, I'll avoid being general and I'll start with the center backs uh, for a moment because I thought um, of the ones we saw, I thought like, Tim Ream was the best performing center back, uh, especially against Uruguay. I mean, I think not playing against Mexico, uh, that's probably a plus for him. Uh, what were your thoughts on his performance, both from a defensive standpoint and then what I thought he really excelled at was kind of playing sort of probing balls. They didn't always come off, but I, I enjoyed his willingness to kind of split lines and try some passes that I felt like Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman were maybe a little bit more hesitant to try to play. I thought Tim Ream was pretty good in the Uruguay game. I think you highlighted what he did well on the ball, and I think that's his thing. That's his game, is making plays with the ball from that left center back spot. We've seen him a little bit wider at left back or, you know, at that left-sided center back in possession in certain times, and I'm not sure that that role suits him as well. I think he was just filling in because there was almost no one else that's left foot in the defender uh, who could do that. So, Tim Ream, I thought, was good against Uruguay. I don't remember specific moments defensively where he either did a lot of positive or a lot of negative things. But from what I've seen of him in the past, he is sort of a limited defender. He's not 
Aaron Long and his mobility, right? He's not going to you know, be able to run around and cover a ton of ground. But if the U.S. can control possession in games, then he could be a real option at that left center back spot, especially with John Brooks being hurt so often. What about his uh, his center back partner against Uruguay, uh, Aaron Long? That's one where, like, I think uh, Felipe and Paul were both like maybe, if not like positive, then at least sort of like, yeah, we saw some good things from that from Aaron Long. He seems like he's in there. And for me, I think the thing that stands out is well, the two things would be the Mexico result means that to me the defense wasn't very good, uh, and then him getting roasted against Uruguay in that one v one, it it has left a negative impression in my mind. So are, I'm wondering if you are up or down on Aaron Long as a center back for the U.S.? I think just because of the Mexico performance, I'm kind of down on Long and his partner, Walker Zimmerman, as both of them at the same time. Long, in the past, like it sticks out to me in the Mexico game from the Gold Cup final, he did a, actually a really good job, at least in my opinion, of, of tracking with Raul Jimenez and making life really difficult for him. So we've seen what Aaron Long is capable of, but I don't think he had you know his best pair of performances in these friendlies. Maybe maybe a little bit of grace we give him from the Mexico game because I think he was planning to start alongside Brooks and then his role changed a little bit, sure, I, I imagine, sure. pretty close to kickoff. But you know, he's just a professional, so th- those things really shouldn't have too much of an effect on him. But yeah, not, not Aaron Long's best camp, not his best international window, but I, I really doubt that his stock has changed too much in Baralther's mind just simply because of the lack of depth at that spot. And you know he, he has proven to be at least a consistent MLS performer and, and a moderately you know, decent option at center back for the U.S. and the international level. So if, if we stick with the idea that Daryl always espouses of like you want your left back, your left center back to have a left foot, you want the right center back to have a right foot, in my mind that means it's probably like John Brooks and Tim Ream would be our left-sided center backs and then it's somewhere between like Aaron Long, Walker Zimmerman, Matt Miazga, maybe somebody else in there. Does, does that check out to you? Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with Daryl's premise there that you want to okay. – as as best you can keep the left side left footed players on the left, right footed players on the right. So Riemann Brooks on one side, and then you know whatever the the whole squad of center backs is on the other side. There's a number of them over there that probably don't really make a huge difference one over the other. All right, and then and then in terms of their defensive uh, partners further wide, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, Reggie Cannon and Serginho Dest. Uh, I. I was like okay with a lot of what I saw from them. I felt like Serginho Dest very good in his 1v1 dribbling. Some of the deficiencies we've seen in his uh, 1v1 defending uh, were there on display. Some of his decision-making as well, especially with his passes forward. I felt like we need to maybe shine up a little bit more, put some polish on those. And I'd say kind of the same stuff for Reggie Cannon. So where are, like, are you on those two, and what would you like to see them develop going forward for the next time they play for the United States if Serginho Dest ends up playing for the, for the U.S.? In my mind, Cannon and Dest probably are, you know, assuming Dest stays with the U.S., which is not at all a fair assumption. I don't know what his, you know, his personal preference is and what he'll decide to do. But if both of these guys keep being involved in the in the American player pool, I think they probably are the fullbacks, you know, for the next few years at least. Reggie Cannon, I thought, yeah, I thought both players were good in this window. Reggie Cannon, maybe not as aggressive going forward or, or not as decisive with the ball as. I would like to see from him, especially because of how active the fullbacks have to be in breaking a press, just thinking about the Mexico game. I think uh, he could continue to work on that part of his game a little bit. But on the whole, Cannon, from what I've seen of him with FC Dallas, is very good on the ball and, and willing to go forward and good at you know, rotating into different spaces. I think he's versatile on that side. So I have high hopes for him and for his future 
it seems that Berhalter really rates him ahead of Nick Lima at this point. So it, we have sort of an idea of what that spot is going to look like for the for the next little bit. Dust on the other side. It was really unfortunate that he gave up that that nutmeg goal against Mexico because he had yeah. done a, a pretty good job uh, against Tecatito in some moments before then, and I think it just kind of went downhill pretty quickly at that point. Uh, defensively, he still does have things to work on. He's eight, he's 18 years old, but I think he he probably is still a better defender than maybe the narrative suggests. It's hard to say that given the fact that he did get burned pretty badly on that goal, and and there are a couple moments where he wasn't perfect defensively as well. So. Definite room to improve on, on that side of the ball and offensively as well. We saw classic Serginho Des things in this game in in this camp. We saw you know him combine centrally, you know, make these interior runs from left back and and do all the fun things that we love to see from Serginho Des. But I'd almost think that Berhalter would say that he wasn't assertive enough. He wasn't aggressive enough going forward. I think Dest like could very well be the most talented offensive player in the in the pool. Really, I don't think that that's yeah. saying too much. Christian Pulisic is pretty much the only other guy that I can see as having as much skill as Dest. So I want to see ways that Dest can be an offensive focal point and not just, you know, oh, well, when the ball rotates out to him at left back, we'll let him play around a little bit. I think we could see Berhalter try to develop different ways to make Dest a focal point in the attack. I don't think we quite saw that in this camp. We saw a few glimpses of what Dest can do combining on the left with Pulisic in that early stages of the Mexico game. But I'm going to be keeping my eye on that for the future to see how he is involved in the attack. So Daryl had uh, like ar- like argued that he wanted to see Dest played further forward because uh, he felt like, one, he could do some damage there, but number two, there was like less pressure on him to come in and do a defensive job. And I think the nutmeg against Mexico was sort of exhibit A and why he wanted that. Is that something you would like to see? Would you like to see Dest given a run out as a more kind of like dedicated winger? I would absolutely be interested in that. The only issue is then are we back to team tim ream at left back and then that's kind of starts the cycle over again uh, so point. just looking at dust <laughs> in, a, in a vacuum i would absolutely be interested in seeing him get more of an increased role in the attack but there are other variables and i don't know exactly how to solve them all right that's fair um a couple of other like specific players uh, i wanted to bring up uh, i have said a couple times that i think we know enough about christian roldan at this point i think he's okay i think he's great for seattle but i i don't think he's going to be a next level performer for the united states and i don't know if he has that much that he can develop to become that uh that opinion it like that I've said multiple times uh, is sometimes translated as me bashing him. I don't feel like I am, but I guess I, I got between two and like 40 messages telling me that I bash Christian Roldan or that I'm being unfair, that I'm only focusing on his kind of deficits. Um, so I'm again, <laughs> I feel like I've asked you this before. I'm going to ask it again. Am I missing something about Christian Roldan when it comes to the U S national team? And if I'm not, I'm wondering if you have ideas about what I should be watching so maybe I'm looking for the positives because the moments that stand out to me, like you mentioned before, like him failing to make that foul to to stop the counterattack, some of his sort of passes being a little bit errant and there's like a three, there's like a 30 second sequence where I feel like he passes it to the wrong person three times and that, those moments stand out to me. So I had a few people say like, oh, we well, are only focusing on the negative moments and you didn't talk at all about his positives. So go ahead and plug your ears, uh, Seattle Sounders fans. Uh, okay, you should have him plugged by now. Yeah. I, I don't see anything. I don't think you're missing anything, Taylor. He's a fine player. I think he's a very, very good MLS player. He's he's great for Seattle. I'm just echoing what you're saying, basically. I don't think he brings anything that uh, really the other options in central midfield don't. So to the national team, I think he's a good – I think Paul Tenorio literally said this You know, when you guys were talking about it. I think he's a good fifth or sixth central midfield option. 
but he probably shouldn't be more than that. And I think that's okay. Like, you can still be a good player for your club, a very good player with decent upside, and not be a huge national team contributor. So I don't... Uh, Roldan's game, in my mind, is he's that classic two-way player. He can make plays both ways with Seattle. He can fill in a lot of different roles, play kind of anywhere across the different vertical channels of the field. But then when we see him with the national team, and you highlighted that exact play when he when he doesn't make that foul there... Mm-hmm that's kind of what he's there for is to is to muck up the game defensively and to to make a few impact offensive plays a game but when he's not taking advantage of those opportunities it's hard to keep seeing reasons to get him real minutes with the with the national team uh what one of the letters i got uh came from eric main eric i hope you don't mind me uh putting your business in the street uh but basically he was kind of he was disagreeing with me uh in my appraisal of roldan for a variety of reasons one of them was that i praised sebastian legette and then was negative towards roldan uh eric put in a bunch of statistics uh, showing me how statistically Rodan had a good performance, but the one that I think he thought kind of made his argument, uh, Eric, I'm, I apologize again because you can't really defend yourself, uh, but you know, I'm going to throw it out anyway, was like Rodan's passing map. He had, I think, 10 uh, misplaced passes as opposed to Legette's three, but uh, Eric's argument was that like a lot of them were line splitting forward direct passes that didn't come off. Um, and, and I think that right there, though, is where I am on Christian Rodan to like further explain why I'm not as excited about him or not as up as maybe Seattle fans are is just that like you need that midfielder in my mind to be able to come in and to be able to kind of pull off anything you're asking them to do so like using Weston McKinney's example like I have faith in him to be able to play forward passes that do split lines but then also put in the defensive shift but then also make simple short passes and if you have a person who's sort of not completing the passes forward, not kind of facilitating the attack, to me then they're doing a couple specific roles okay, but they're not like making that next step in the right direction because they're not helping you elevate your game. And I think that's where I am with Christian Roldan is I know what he can do, but I don't feel like he's going to help the U.S.'s attack elevate to that next level. So I'm not going to be angry if I see him on a roster again. Uh, I'm not angry about many people that I see on rosters, but I'm not going to be like elated either. I'm, I'm assuming he'll be on there a few more times, but he's not the one I think I want when we're coming up with our 23-man squad, hopefully for the World Cup. I'm with you. I think we've seen Roldan ceiling, and that's, again, that's fine. That's that's nothing you know that he should you know, feel like he has to adjust at this point. He kind of is who he is as a player. And so Seattle Seattle fans and Chris Jodan supporters are fine to see the positives in him. We all have different biases that, you know, we don't necessarily realize, or, or maybe we do realize and we're proud of it. Um, but Roldan, I think, is a fine player uh, who can do the job as long as that job is, you know, kind of being a slightly above average midfielder. Hey, folks, uh, one more quick interruption to let you know that today's episode is brought to you in part by our old pals over at Roughneck Scarves. That's R-U-F-F-N-E-C-K scarves.com. They're the official scarf provider for U.S. soccer, for Major League Soccer, for the NCAA, and for the USL. Um, You can obviously get scarves for the U.S. men's national team. You can also get them for the U.S. women's national team. Uh, I really like some of the women's national team uh, offerings, including the four stars uh, one. That one's pretty solid. Then they've got the Flora Eagle. Uh, You can find Find those under like the featured scarves right now. Both of those uh, look great. I'm going to assume feel great too because we know Roughneck has excellent quality. But as I was scrolling their options, uh, I noticed there are hockey scarves. If you're a hockey fan, you could go that route. And then I noticed there's a scarf that says Ollie on it. And I did not know what that was because uh, I don't live in LA and I am not an LAFC fan. Uh, so I did some researching and I love that LA has a scarf for one of their Falcons. LAFC have three Falcons that I guess they fly before every game. Uh, Ollie gets his own one. I don't know 
why Fig and Mel are left out. Maybe Ollie's just the most marketable, brandable one. I'm not sure. Maybe he's the most popular. He's probably the most charming. But you could get an Ollie scarf. But obviously, if you're a fan of any MLS team, they have got you covered with scarves for every single franchise. So you can get one of the 14,000 Atlanta scarves and many other offerings as well, including Austin scarves. If you're an Austin FC fan, they've got you covered there, too. Uh, Best of all, our listeners can get a whopping 20% off any scarf in the shop with the promo code Total Soccer Show. I should know that does not include the custom scarf option, uh, which you can obviously use to create a scarf for whatever you might need. Maybe uh, the other two Falcons get a little bit bitter. Uh, maybe Fig makes his own scarf. Maybe Mel does the same. Ollie already has hers, so she doesn't need one. Uh, but once again, uh, that's roughneckscarves.com, and you can use the promo code TOTALSOCCERSHOW, all one word, all uppercase, to get 20% off any scarf in the shop. We thank Roughneck very much for their continued sponsorship of the Total Soccer Show. It's obviously very much appreciated. Uh, now back to my conversation with Joe. Yeah, okay. All right, cool. So on the same page there, uh, where are you on Josh Sargent's performance? That's that's one where I, I really liked what I saw from him in terms of his movement against Uruguay, uh, his attempts to be direct at certain times, but then dropping into others and then being deliberate in possession at times, but then still trying to take people on uh, fairly directly. Uh, Felipe and Paul, I think we're slightly cooler on him. Uh, so I, I'm, I guess I'll ask you the same thing I asked Reggie Can- about Reggie Cannon and Sergino Dest. Like, what are a couple things you want to see Josh Sargent develop uh, either this season or over the next couple months so that by the time we see him again, we can kind of tell like, oh, his game has progressed and now he's doing these couple things that maybe he wasn't able to do before. Maybe Jesse Zardes isn't able to do and that's why he needs to be our second, if not first choice striker. Josh Sargent already does in my mind so many things that, you know, Jossie Zardes can't do that I don't really see the argument for not having him compete with Josie Altador for that first string striker role. But if we're looking at things that I, I think Sargent could continue to improve on to maybe push himself past Altador, I think we're looking at, you know, just consistently getting in opportunities inside the box and getting shots on goal in dangerous areas. That's what I want to see from Sargent. And because of the way Berhalter structured his offensive uh, shape against Uruguay, we didn't see him spend a ton of time, like right between the center backs when the U.S. had the ball in the final third, just kind of lurking in the box to, to try to get those poachers' goals. We didn't see a ton of that because Berhalter had him dropping deeper, trying to, to help his team you know, progress ball through midfield and things like that. So I want to see Sargent score goals. Basically, that's the long and short of it is I think we need an American striker who can, who can you know, put points on the board. Like We need to see him become lethal in, in the box and – I think he has so many other parts of playing striker already like in his arsenal. I think he, he is very, very good at dropping deeper, and that's likely why Berhalter had him do that against Uruguay. He's good at, at reading the defensive line. So he, like you mentioned, he had some very nice direct runs as well. Tim Ream played a, a lovely ball over the top, and, and Sargent completely, Sargent's movement completely uh, faked out the, the opposing defensive line because he had been dropping short so many times he, he got in behind. So it's, there's a mental aspect of it as well that I think Sargent is good at, or at least it appears that he, he has that part of his game. But I would really like to see him get consistent minutes for Werder Bremen and, and become more of that classic old-fashioned striker to couple with his already developing uh, skills on the ball. So, like, you're right that it sounds obvious to say, like, I want the striker to be a striker. I want them to <laughs> score goals. But it is a really valuable thing, obviously, because that's how you win games. But also because, for me, I think about it and, like, I don't know who the best finisher is on the team right now. But I do know that, like, 
like Je- uh, Jesse Zardes, Jesse Altador, even Josh Sargent, if they're one-on-one with a goalkeeper, I'm hoping they score that goal, but I don't necessarily have faith that they're definitely going to. And, like, it's unfair maybe, but I contrast that with, like, Robert Lewandowski, you would always assume, is going to score in a 1v1 scenario. He's going to find, like, he's going to pick the spot, pass it in perfectly, be smart, be calm on the ball. Those three forwards for the U.S., I, I just – I don't – have that same level of faith right now. Uh, and and I guess that makes me wonder then, do you have a person who you think of as being, like who you think is probably the best finisher on the team, or if not in this squad, then maybe like uh, in the national team pool, who you think is definitely just like that clinical striker that the U.S. could use? Christian Pulisic is really the only guy who I think if he's yeah. in a 1v1 with the goalkeeper, who I would you know kind of take in a, in a bet. Zardes... Uh, Altador, I think maybe more so than than Jossie Zardes. Sargent, again, I just I don't quite know yet. I want to see more of him, and and that skill hopefully will develop as he continues to get minutes. But basically, outside of Pulisic, I'm not sure I take any anybody consistently in a fifty fifty. Well, that's uh, kind of sad, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I feel like, yeah, probably representative of where we are. Um, any other like uh, players that stood out to you for either positive or negative reasons? We talked a little bit about Jackson Ewan, sort of the diagonal ball playing. I felt like he did well with that, but it was against Uruguay, so like the lack of pressure there. There was literally no pressure on him in the first 20 minutes, so I can't tell. like Will he be able to do that under pressure? I guess that's the thing we'll see. But who else uh, impressed you or who else failed to impress you? One guy, and I don't think this is going to be a particularly popular, you know, statement, but I thought Brad Guzan did the job, you know, decently well against Uruguay. Uh, there's complaining whenever he's in the team now because he is older, but I'm not convinced that he isn't the best, you know, goalkeeper that we currently have that the United States has access to. So Guzan is is one guy that I'm keeping my eye on, and then I thought Jordan Morris was good against Uruguay. I think he was comfortable, and I know you've talked about this already, Taylor. I think he was comfortable with his his left foot, which is something that maybe we haven't seen as much in the past. So that was a, an encouraging development for me. Outside of those guys, frankly, I'm not sure that I have anyone in particular. I thought Weston McKinney you know, was was poor against Mexico, and and I'm a little concerned about what I'm seeing from him with the national team over the last couple of games, but. Uh, you know, the Mexico game was just all in all a really awful performance from the entire team. So I also don't want to read too much into a one player's negative performance when there were so many others as well. I want to I want to jump in there really fast to say, like, I, I agree entirely with your point about Weston McKinney. And I want to, like, say that to then say that when I was using him as my example, when we were talking about Roldan versus Legette's passing, I, like, used him. And then immediately in my head as I was talking was like, he might not be the best example in terms <laughs> of consistent passing performances and overall consistent play for the national team. So, yeah, I think we're in the same boat about McKinney. So, Maybe that's like, hopefully that's instability at club level. And as Schalke continue to kind of gel and find the right way to play and find the way they want to play under David Wagner, maybe his performances with the national team uh, progress. But I absolutely enjoyed what I saw from Jordan Morris because I think with what we were talking about earlier and some of the like hesitation to take the space and hesitation to play balls in or to try stuff and feeling like, like there were players thinking. And it's strange to say, but I think sometimes in soccer, the worst thing you can do is think versus like just sort of act within instinct and I and it did seem like Jordan Morris had moments where he was doing what was asked of him and executing the game plan but then every now and then there were those moments where he was just like all right head down I'm going past you and then I'm going to cross it and that that cross was frequently with the left foot was the other reason why he stood out to me because I felt like he kind of played the system and did what Burhalter wanted but then in those moments had that sort of stereotypical or customary I guess depending on your perspective like fight that we want to see from national team players and obviously his goal against Uruguay is a good example of that he d- he doesn't give up nor does is it Nick Lima who keeps that one alive 
Yes, that's, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. correct. Those two fighting for it, but Jordan Morris, you know, like chesting it into the goal. I like that he was there. That felt representative of his uh, international break. I'm totally with you. I think it was encouraging to see Jordan Morris get on the score sheet there, especially because I do think he had a good performance in that game. So I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll continue to see Morris get a few minutes, you know, in Nations League games over the next couple of months and see how he continues to develop uh, to develop both with Seattle and the national team. Um, so I don't think of you as a like reactionary person, or at least not on Twitter. Like you're not. I don't see a lot of like hyperbolic rhetoric out there. But with that said, at this point in Burhalter's tenure with Nations League games coming up, World Cup qualification isn't that far away. Um, are there any players that you sort of don't want to see on future rosters? Not ones that you're going to complain about and moan about and write in all caps about, but just are there names in there that you think I've seen enough? Uh, I know what he's trying to do. I know the system now. You're not quite pulling it off. Uh, yeah, guys that I just don't think really bring a whole lot to the table at this point. Some of the guys on the bench, I think really, you know, Daniel Lovitz, I don't, I don't quite know what he brings to the, to the table. Then you also have, uh, you know, it's hard to say, but Jossie Zardes and Will Trap both, I don't think bring a whole lot that isn't able to be replicated by other guys that maybe have a little bit more upside. Um, but you know, all these players, the Corey Baird is another one. Like, I mean, he's, he's a fine player. But I don't, I don't think they bring a whole lot to the table. But again, from Berhalter's perspective, who else is he going to call up? If he's not calling up, you know, U20 players who are getting minutes for reserve teams in the in the Netherlands, which is an entirely different discussion as to whether those guys, you know, should be called in or you know how much you know, playing for your club matters in terms of national team, all that stuff. That's a, that's another topic. But I, I guess I don't know. The pool is just so shallow right now that we can you know complain about these guys getting called in. But I just don't know who they would be replaced by, if that makes sense. So I don't love watching Jossie Zardes play soccer. But, I mean, if Josie Altador is out, like, who else are we going to see other than yeah. Joss Sargent? So that's that's the difficult spot that I recognize Berhalter is in. And so while there are guys that I, I just really don't quite see it at the national team level, I understand his predicament. So – let me, let me ask you this then. If we had a World Cup qualifier that, like, against decent opposition that we needed to win – what would be your starting 11 and like maybe one that combines sort of what we know about Burhalter, what he wants to do from a like stylistic tactical standpoint versus what you think or like combining that with what you think would work? What would that 11 look like? So a goalkeeper is tough because I, I am sort of debating between Stefan and Guzan because you, you can leave I don't it there. You Stefan can leave it with well. two options. That's fine. It doesn't have to be. So, one okay. So those guys, those guys are, are in there for sure. And then, I think a back line of, of Reggie Cannon at right back, Aaron Long and Brooks as the two center back partners. Again, if John Brooks is healthy, I think you have a nice balance of ideally defensive mobility from Aaron Long and then offensive capabilities. Uh, Brooks's offensive abilities are, are, are well noted and recorded at this point. Serginho Dest at left back. I, I don't buy the whole, you know, let's play a, a more experienced guy at that spot, you know, because it, it's Daniel Lovitz or Tim Ream at this point. I, I think Dest brings more than either one of those guys can at left back. So, that's my backline, Cannon, Long, Brooks, and Dest. And then if we're seeing sort of this this three-man midfield, kind of like we saw in both of these friendlies, and not we're not expecting Brawler to mess with the midfield shape and, and structure a little bit, then I still think Michael Bradley is the number six, and, and you let Adams and McKinney, you know, you hope that they have enough offensive creativity to make that worthwhile. Uh, maybe you bring Dest forward, and that's where some of the creative boost comes from. But Adams and McKinney in place of, you know, I guess – McKenney and, and Morales, if we're looking at the Mexico game, we plug those two guys in in midfield in front of Michael Bradley. And then the front line, 
you know, if everyone's healthy, I think seeing Tim Weah, Josie Altador, and Christian Pulisic is a nice blend of ability to go direct, ability, you know, for Josie Altador to drop into midfield and help move play forward like we saw Sargent do against Uruguay, and then Pulisic's creativity combining with Dest on that left side and, and moving centrally when necessary. I think that 11 and that front three specifically with Weah, Altador, and Pulisic is one that I'm, I'm very interested to see, and I hope that we get all those guys healthy over the next couple of months, and we, we do see that at some point, at least before World Cup qualifying next year. I kind of forgot about the idea of Tyler Adams as like the number 10 or if you're going to go with like dual number eights playing him there. I forgot that that was an option because I feel like that has become Pulisic's position. But you're absolutely right that if you move Pulisic wide where he can absolutely thrive, you have Timothy Way on the right. And then that does give you a pretty strong midfield. I, I, I think I'm okay with that. The one wrinkle, does it matter if DeAndre Edlin comes back and gets fit and looks decent? Do you feel like at this point it's going to be Reggie Cannon and then maybe it's like Yedlin and Nick Lima? Or w- what's the uh, kind of pecking order there at right back for you? I'm going to be honest. I completely forgot DeAndre Yedlin existed. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, DeAndre, if, if you're listening to this I or mean, any he's diehard. Been, he's been hurt for a little while. I think that's justified. Right, right. Um, so in my mind, I don't think anything changes. Yedlin, I've never been an avid supporter of his. He's fine. He's a fine player. Oh, that's really hard. That's really hard, uh, Taylor. I I don't know. I'd probably still go with Cannon if it was up to me. Okay. All right. And then any like into and then center back depth. Is it uh, Zimmerman Miazga? Would you put uh, Tim Ream in there? Maybe as like the left back substitute. If we're gonna kind of flush out this roster from there. Yeah, so I, I definitely bring Tim Ream because while I don't think he did a great job at left back in the past, he can do a job there. Mm-hmm. The quality of the job is up for debate. But he also can fill in at left center back, which is great. So if slash when, question mark, uh, Brooke gets, Brooks is injured with some sort of knock, then Ream can step in there. So those Ream and Miazga at center back I think is fair if, if we're bringing four center backs, which I think is normal, right? Or is it five? Hey, it can be whatever you want it to be. It's your, it's your roster. Oh, the freedom. Yeah, so I think those guys, and then if, if I you know come back through and I didn't build this roster correctly, then maybe you throw in a Walker Zimmerman or a Miles Robinson, depending on what you're looking for, if it's you know more of defensive-oriented or, or you want to hopefully a plus-side passer, although, again, Zimmerman didn't show that he's capable of doing that in the Mexico game. Uh, and then you you said earlier that like you're kind of okay with maybe seeing less of Will Trap at this point. That's the nice way to put it. Uh, if you have Michael Bradley playing at number six at this point, is Jackson Yule your sort of deputy there, or are there other names that you think could fit in? I'd love to see Jackson Yule keep getting uh, into this team. I think he brings some nice upside on both sides of the ball. Playing from Mateus Almeida in San Jose, you have to have some sort of defensive ability and desire to to hunt down and win the ball. So Yule is a good one. Also, I, I think Tyler Adams could fill that spot. The only reason I didn't put him there is because, you know, we, we've talked about before, until Berhalter believes that he can hit those long diagonal balls, then we're not going to see him as the six. And it's, you know, it's, it's become old hat at this point. So Adams, in my mind, absolutely could slide back there as well. And if, for some reason, neither one of those guys is there, then, you know, put Will Trap in. He's, he's fine. He's decent with the ball under pressure. He had a couple nice moments in that Mexico game, I think more so than maybe some of the other midfielders in there. But if I'm getting to pick, it's it's probably Jackson Ewell and then Tyler Adams as well. Okay. And then uh, Josie Altador up top, Josh Sargent deputizing? Yeah, that would that would be my preference. I think you let those two guys fight it out in camp, and if Sargent is you know way better, then you let him start. Otherwise, Altador is the go-to. All right. And then, like, 
in terms of like wide options, this is where the United States feels especially thin, which I think is like the consistent idea of why you should play Christian Pulisic out wide. It's why I kind of think they should too. Uh, but if you're looking for depth there, is it like Paul Areola and Jordan Morris, do you think, are your options coming in? I think it passed Weah and, uh, and Pulisic in the yeah. depth chart. Those two guys are the next on each side. They can kind of both play on either side. Mm-hmm. I think Morris, typically I think of Morris as being stronger on that right wing because of his right foot, but we saw him be effective on the left against Uruguay. And Areola, you know, he can do pretty much anything. You can stick him at fullback if you need to. So I think just for his positional versatility and defensive abilities, Paul Areola's, Paul Areola's in there as, you know, a depth guy on this roster. I think I think we're not far off from what probably Burhalter's strongest 23 would be. I, I We still can't know for sure like if Tyler Adams is going to be used as the right back turn center midfielder on occasion, if that's a strategy he's going to stick with, or if at this point he will just try to play him in the midfield. But that's a, a thing I guess we'll have to wait until October to find out. Uh, what we don't have to wait to find out, because we already know this, is that uh, Phoenix is very good at soccer, and that's how I want to close out the show. Uh, Mr. Lowry, I know you are uh, a Phoenix Rising fan. Can we talk for a little bit about uh, your USL so- squad oh let's do please (laughs) it's it's been an incredible ride uh this season getting to be up close cover this team and cover this win streak that they're currently on it's it's i've never seen anything like it so uh, I have not been paying that much attention to the Western Conference of the USL Championship this season. You obviously have, as you've said. Um, so for people who have missed this, what is the streak and like how have Phoenix been able to pull this off? So just to give some background information, Phoenix Rising ha- has won 19 straight games, uh, which broke the uh, previously held record for consecutive wins in any American professional soccer division in the history of all recorded soccer results in the United States. So they, they've made history. Yeah, you know, just casual. Uh, it's, they're doing pretty okay. Um, so right now, as of the time of recording, they're 18 points clear, 18 points clear on the top of the Western Conference, uh, which is just insane. It's it's absurd. They have – they built this win streak with, with not just exceedingly dominant performances. They have done that. That Don't get me wrong. They've beat teams by four goals, five goals, six goals throughout this win streak. Um, but they've also – had to win like had to just really get down and dirty and still play their style which is very you know free-flowing pleasing attacking soccer but they've had to win games in some not so pretty ways uh they had solomon asante who just won the league's player of the month uh he's a former Ghanaian international who who's good enough to be playing in so many different places around the world he's absolutely a, a phenomenal winger uh just hit a game-winning free kick in the in the dying moments of a game uh last weekend against san antonio and then uh, last night they just beat Las Vegas Lights uh, at their baseball field, and uh, Adam John, former so, MLS was striker, that a, was that a little bit of shade there, Joe? A, a little bit. I mean, <laughs> uh, it's not watching the game to analyze it for tactics is terrible because the camera yep. angles is just awful. So mm-hmm. that's more where my my shade comes in. Um, I got you. Adam John, you know, capitalized on a, a Las Vegas mistake and just buried the ball in the, in the side of the net. Just had no business scoring it, really, but was in the right place at the right time because he's a smart guy and, and a very, very good striker. Um, so it just all these components are coming together, and the team doesn't want to stop. They're, at this point, the streak is, is old news kind of here in Phoenix. Some, some mainstream media outlets are somehow just now getting on board and, and realizing that this is something that's happening. But for those of us that have kind of been around from the beginning of the season, like players and coaches kind of don't even really want to talk about it anymore because, you know, you get the same questions over and over again. Oh, how did it feel to win this week and add to the streak? You can multiply that by 18 now after the first week of, of games. So 
it's insane. It's crazy. At, at some point, it's going to come to an end, but I, I wouldn't dare guess when that's going to be. Uh, so a couple of things there. Uh, the 18-point lead, w- worth noting, P- PSG, a team that we always mock for like just running away with league, uh, won the league last season by 16 points. So that like USL Championship, you would assume, slightly more competitive. Uh, maybe Phoenix don't have quite the financial resources either. So that, to me, stands out as to like, getting... Getting that amount of a lead, but also the way they've done it, is especially impressive. You talked a little bit about how they've like how they've played, but then how they've adapted, how they've been practical on occasion. But like similar question to what I asked you about Berhalter in the U.S. right now. Like if someone's asking you, like why is this, why is this team exciting aside from the streak? How do they play? What should I pay attention to? How would you answer that? So they they have sort of a, a non official official relationship with LAFC. Right. So for those of for those out there that have watched LAFC play, there are some definite similarities. They they stick to a four three three, and they really move the ball quickly in possession. They press to win it back. Uh, so there's there's some high pressing that goes on off goal kicks and and some counter pressing when they lose the ball in the attacking half. They they love line splitting line breaking passes from their center backs. That's something that Rick Schantz talks about all the time. That that manager Rick Schantz really loves to see. So AJ Cochran, who who's their left center back more often than not, and then they've brought in Corey Whelan, who is playing uh, in England for Liverpool's youth teams. Uh, they they're both very good on the ball, and the other center backs on the roster are as well. So it's a very offensive-oriented team that when they defend as well, they turn that into attacking. So they love to call it offensive defending. When they when they don't have the ball, it's still an, an active, an active situation. There's always you know risk. They talk about risk all the time. The coaching staff in how they play, but they they love that, and that's the, that's the culture that they built is it, taking risks in possession and out of possession, but with the belief that those things are going to pay off. And as kind of their success this season indicates, they it really has paid off. So we started the show with a little bit of a cliche question. I'm going to end it with a cliche question. As you said, they've made history. But if they don't win USL Championship, would you rather they like have this streak and not win? Or would you rather they have been a pretty good team that ends up winning the title but doesn't have that streak? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I, this streak is something that I, I won't forget and that I know so many other people here in Arizona won't forget either. But if you asked anybody in the organization and, and any of the players and coaches, they would say if they don't end the season with the USL Championship trophy, it's it's really not worthwhile. So I think I tend to agree with that. Winning the league is probably still more important as, as great and as exciting as a long winning streak is. If you don't end the season with the trophy that actually matters, then then really at a certain point people aren't going to remember anymore. And, and actually, uh, final question. How much of this team is sort of like – like organically constructed versus like, hey, Major League Soccer, see how good we are? This is how good we could be for you. Like, is this a team that if they don't become another MLS franchise, like will they continue to operate and be strong or as strong as they've been? Or do you think this is sort of a sustained push to maybe attract the attention of Major League Soccer to show MLS that they can be a competitive team? Getting, you know, getting attention from MLS and from people who who watch MLS and want to see, you know, the best teams get in that league is an advantage, but there's no doubt in my mind that even if the streak wasn't happening, the way the club has has built and has grown organically since uh, you know the last few years, that it, they will continue to operate at a high level. It won't always be this high, um, but it is sustainable, regardless of whether or not MLS ever comes calling or, or whether the team makes a formal expansion bid to get into MLS. This team is going to be a, a fixture here in Phoenix for for a long time. 
There we go. And Joe is going to be a fixture on the Total Soccer Show for a very long time because he <laughs> brings the analysis of both Phoenix and the U.S. Men's National Team, uh, also Major League Soccer. We had I had planned to talk a little bit about that, but we've gone plenty long on all things uh, American soccer for right now for me. So, uh, Joe, I just wanted to thank you again for taking all the time to help me make sense of this international window, and I look forward uh, to chatting again soon. Absolutely. It's always a blast, my friend. 